The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hamelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Brian Kaufman. He is an award-winning executive video producer at the Detroit Free Press. And at the Detroit Free Press, he bridges the gap between video journalism and documentary film. His work spans a broad range from news-driven shorts to feature films on social and environmental issues. The National Academy of Television, Arts, and Sciences has recognized Mr. Kaufman's work with three Emmy Awards. Most recently, Mr. Kaufman co-directed Cold Water Kitchen, a James Beard award-winning film about Chef Jimmy Hill, who runs a highly regarded culinary training program in a Michigan prison. This program offers incarcerated men a renewed sense of purpose through the craft of fine dining. And Chef Jimmy Hill will be my guest on an upcoming program. Cold Water Kitchen premiered at Doc NYC in 2022, and it is screening at events and festivals across the world. Mr. Kaufman's career began with a visual journalism degree at Brooks Institute of Photography in Southern California. Welcome, Brian. Oh, thanks for having me. So before we dive into your experience producing this film that is truly revolutionary in revealing what goes on behind the scenes, at least in this particular program, I'm curious to know why you chose careers in photography and filmmaking. Um, I started at Brooks Institute of Photography, as you mentioned. It was a visual journalism degree. And I was always, you know, photography was my first love and passion, but Video journalism was a big part of the program, and I immediately saw the storytelling potential with video and movie images as opposed to still images. And so I dove in pretty much 100%, and from that moment on was sort of dedicated to the craft of long-form documentary filmmaking. It took us a while to get here working in newspapers, but we've been able to do it pretty well and satisfying at the Detroit Free Press. Yeah, so what is it about say, a documentary film or video journalism that takes us to another level beyond the printed image? Uh, I think with the video, it's a very direct form of storytelling. With photojournalism, the viewer is a passive observer of your image, and they're drawing what they can out of whatever you photographed and, and making informed decisions uh, about the issue. But with video and documentary film, you obviously have so much more that creates an emotional experience for the viewer through not only images, but sound design, music, things that, you know, are very nuanced that you have to pay attention to. And if it done right, it has a very, very strong emotional pull on people. Yeah, I have to agree. And I love attending documentary film festivals for that very reason. I always feel emotionally moved and often feel inspired to take action. So I really loved your film because as a dietitian, I'm very concerned about not only our larger penal system, which many times seems unjust, but also about the quality of the food that is served in prison. So this is just another one of a series of stories 
that I like to bring my listeners about why it is so important to pull back the curtain on what goes on in our national prison system. So I want to know what initially sparked your interest in the culinary program at the Lakeland Correctional Facility. And it really is revolutionary. I don't know of any other culinary program like this. Yeah, well, so I've been making documentary films at the Detroit Free Press for over a decade. And uh, my co-director on this film, Mark Kurlianchek, was the Detroit Free Press restaurant critic at the time. We started this back in 2018. But incidentally, Mark also has a degree in documentary film from Berkeley. So he, he has the background and he, as the restaurant critic, he got a letter in the mail from uh, one of the prisoners at Lakeland Correctional Facility, Ernest Davis, who ended up being a character in the film. And this guy basically said, Chef Hill runs this program. It's changed our lives. Would you be interested in coming out to see what it's all about? So Mark went out, wrote a story about it, was blown away by the quality of food that they were making. And he and I decided that we were going to try to to make a film about it. We knew that there was more there. We knew there was enough there. And the hurdle, I guess, was getting Michigan Department of Corrections on board and, and letting them have us into the facility for um, one day a month for over a year. One day a month. I wondered about the process. Yeah. How long did it take you for the the prison administration to approve your filming inside this kitchen? You know, Michigan Department of Corrections and many other states limit access for video and photography and media in general. It's really hard to sort of get in and get behind the curtain of what happened there with a camera. But programming is something that they want to highlight. And so they surprisingly said yes fairly quickly to our request to come in and turn a, a camera onto this program. There were caveats, of course. We didn't have like full reign of the prison. We were very limited where we could go. We were really isolated to the classroom, kitchen, and garden. But it ended up being a blessing in disguise. There's a lot of, you know, when you do see uh, fictional films or even documentaries in prison, there's there's a lot of visual stereotyping that happens, clanging doors, sound effects to that extent, everything that you expect from prison. And this forced us to really turn our cameras on the artistry of what was happening in this program. So we're not in cells with the prisoners. We're in the kitchen. You know, I have my macro lens, which is a detail focused lens, really trained on food within like three inches and just trying to bring out the delicacy with which these guys operate in their cooking and as well as the garden and just being out in that space that is so great for them to have. It's like half the size of a football field. They grow everything from beets to strawberries and in between. And it's visually and sort of spiritually, it's a place that doesn't feel like prison. And so our cameras sort of went that direction. And I'm, I'm really glad that they did. So is that garden accessible to all of the prisoners or just the prisoners that participate in this program? Uh, that garden is isolated to the food tech program. There are other gardens in the facility. And they there was, I'm not sure if it still exists, there was a horticulture program that grew a lot of food. And, you know, speaking of sort of the, the non-opportunity for prisoners to eat good food, a lot of that, the food that they grew, which was, you know, by all means organic because you can't have pesticides in prison, a lot of that food was shipped off and donated. And so a lot of these guys have to eat pretty awful food while being surrounded by these huge gardens. And so the food tech garden is the one exception where they can grow anything they want, basically, and then utilize that food in their cooking as well. I'm really glad you brought up the issue of 
the prison food and lack of access to what a garden might produce outside of the food tech program. Because it's been my experience too, in the few programs that I've had an opportunity to investigate, the food is produced in these beautiful gardens. It's healthy, it's nourishing. And yet the prisoners or the inmate population cannot eat that food. It's shipped out to food banks largely. I think that's such an injustice. Yeah. And so it's great for these guys to, to at least have a little slice that they can draw from. And and a lot of the guys, it's their first time farming. So there's that aspect of it as well. You know, how do you um how do you plant year after year? How do you harvest? There's all of that that goes into the program as well. It's not just cooking. Yeah. Okay. I wanna know how you chose your three lead characters. There are three lead people that you focus on in this film. There are many others. How many people are allowed in the program? Like, how are they chosen? And how did you decide on those three? Uh, Chef Hill runs a program with, if it's full, he has 50 people every day. And it takes about a year, maybe a little less, to get these guys through the program. But there's 50 people. And so we went in the first couple of times that Mark and I went there, we just sat down with audio only mics and just interviewed pretty much everyone just to hear their life stories, where they came from. And the three characters that sort of sprung out of all that were the three characters we ended up featuring in the film. And I've been doing documentary a long time and, and very rarely do you get lucky for lack of a better word in finding three distinct rich characters, all at very different stages um, within the criminal justice system who are also such a, engaging characters right off the bat. It was almost instantaneous, you know, these three guys rose to the surface. And so we follow their stories and their stories evolved. Each of their stories evolved tremendously in the year and a half that we were filming. So we really have lucked out with the, the group of guys that we had. Mm -hmm. And we'll dive into their stories a little bit more as we go on. But I am curious, since you interviewed all 50 potential lead characters, were there any common denominators in the stories that they revealed to you? Um, you know, it's it's interesting, especially in doing journalism, you talk to a lot of people, you know, for many years, it was sort of a daily grind where you're doing these video stories. And you, you interview so many people, and so many people are very hesitant to talk and share their stories. And I was immediately sort of taken aback by the openness of all of these guys just to to share their stories. And I think a lot of that has to do with Chef Jimmy Lee Hill's approach to the class, not only just the way that he teaches people to cook, but the the example that he sets and, you know, being honest and open. And and each of these guys were, were so open to sharing their stories that it sort of took me back because you meet a lot of people who, who clam up and don't share their stories. Right. And they, have, they really have no reason to trust us. You know, they're in prison and we're just two people coming in with cameras. So I thought that was a reflection of Chef Jimmy Lee Hill. Yeah. So did you go in the interview process of screening with a set of questions? Uh, more or less. Mark did most of the interviewing. Um, I have more of a cinematography background. So I, I went in through day one was sort of like in the kitchen with these guys filming and Mark did a lot of the initial interviewing. But I think it was just it was more of an open conversation about why they were there. And these are the questions that Chef Hill asks all the guys when they arrive, you know, why are you here? And you know, I want to cook good food. Well, why? And then there's there's always there's so much depth that comes out of it. Everybody has a family story and food always comes from a background and it typically comes from 
three generations back and my great great grandmother cooked this and each of these guys had those stories yeah i think we all do mm-hmm. so this is your first time working inside a prison setting correct yes what surprised you aside from how unprison life that classroom felt i wouldn't say there are any major surprises it's it's the things that you have to that you expect to sometimes happen in prison you know we're in there we typically arrive first thing in the morning. We'd stay till 5 p.m. when the class let out. And sometimes it was much later than that because, you know, the alarm goes off and it's a lockdown and then you're stuck there for another couple hours. So there are those common things that are just part of being in a prison. But in terms of big surprises, I was, you know, as I said before, I was surprised at the openness that I was shown by all of these guys who had no reason to trust us. Right. So you had a screening in California, and there was a panel discussion following the screening. And I was surprised, actually, by a couple of things that came out of that discussion. You told the audience there that you were told not to photograph, or video in this case, anyone with a life without parole sentence. Why do you think that was? Yeah, that was part of one of the stipulations. I mean, we knew it going in. I think MDOC is very... You know, they, they want, and it's the reason they let us in, they want to to shine a light on their programming. Probably every state prison system has programming that works and programming doesn't. And everybody tries to find this, you know, the magical programming. And I think Chef Hill's program is unique because of Chef Hill, not necessarily because it's a cooking program, it's the person. But they wanted us to focus on the students that Chef Hill was teaching who were going to be released from prison and have the opportunity to be working in kitchens. And several of the people in Chef Hill's program are tutors. They're still inmates, but a lot of the tutors were serving longer sentences. These are guys who can be with Chef Hill for some of them years, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, unfortunately, if you have a life without parole sentence. And several of his his tutors were in that position. One of them specifically, Ernest Davis, had been a tutor for Chef Hill for 20 years. And uh, he ended up being one of our characters. But when we started filming, he was still serving a life without parole sentence. We knew he had a case um, that was coming up again in court because he was convicted as a minor. And a lot of these life without parole sentences have been overturned by judges. And we knew his case was going to be one of those. But the warden and the, the people in the prison didn't. And there was no way for us to know if his case was going to be overturned. So we tried to follow him because we knew he was such an engaging character and it got tricky a couple of times. You know, I have a, you know, we had a couple wireless mics and I'd put it on him when he was cooking. And sometimes correction officer would come in and see it on him and say, Hey, you can't film him and take it off. <laughs> you have to explain that. Well, he's also teaching other guys, you know, it's not just him, but there was a sort of a delicate dance that we had to, to dance as we were filming Ernest, before it became apparent that he was going to be released, which was such a relief for, for him. Oh, my gosh. And us as well. Yes. His, you know, he spent 35 years in prison, expected to be in for life. And that moment where you're actually releasing, you realize you're going to have another shot at life. That doesn't happen in many people's lives. Yeah. I'm glad you included that because I think it raised my awareness anyway of just how inhumane it is to sentence someone who's essentially a juvenile or making decisions as a 17-year-old and then facing a life sentence without parole. So I appreciated that slice of revealing 
what our criminal justice system does to people. But Brian, let me take one break. And I want to just reintroduce you and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Brian Kaufman. He is an award-winning executive video producer at the Detroit Free Press. And his latest body of work is titled Cold Water Kitchen. And it recently won the James Beard Media Award. And congratulations, by the way, for that. Another point that came up during the California panel was that you were also told no shots of razor wire. Why is that? Um, this is something that MDOC does, and and I suspect other state prison systems. It's considered a security concern to photograph or show any parts of the facility that could be seen and then compromised by somebody on the outside. I don't know. I think it's kind of an excuse, to be honest, you know. You can't really film inside without seeing some wall or door or fence. And so it's one of those things that we weren't blatant about it. But if we were filming in the garden, the fence is obviously going to be in the background. So we just kind of did what we could and, and just blew that one under the table. I think it's important to see it just as a friendly reminder about how a person lives in a prison setting. So I appreciated the footage of it. Your camera largely focuses on Jimmy's life and the workings in the kitchen. You also were able to capture really intimate conversations with Jimmy, as well as his home lifestyle. You also captured a courtroom scene, as you mentioned earlier, in which Ernest learns that his life without parole sentence is overturned. And then you juxtapose all that with macro images in the garden, as well as the food. Why did you choose those juxtapositions as an artist? I think part of it for me is personal. I, you know, I was born and raised in a very small mountain town. I didn't really have neighbors. I roamed around and visual details have always been a real big part of my life, you know, sitting down and looking at something close up. And so anything that I film, I, I try to to focus on that because it, these are details that, that often go missing in our lives as we're paying attention to bigger things and conversations, the macro, like the large environment that is life. And so whenever I'm filming um, on a film or a project, I, I try to train my camera on those things that are often don't get recognized, those details. And the smallest of them, the beauty that exists at that level when you're that close to something, it's a nice refresher to have a visual reminder that despite everything that's going on, that often feels huge out of control of life. There's also these things that are in front of us every day that, that are beautiful. Yeah. Well, I think it really works beautifully in this film. And apparently the, the folks at the James Beard Foundation felt that way too. But it really is beautiful. And I think what those still images did for me, they helped me listen more closely to the people speaking that go along with those images. But that's just my personal experience in viewing the film. Yeah. And another thing that I should mention, um, which you probably noticed watching the film, we don't have any what we call talking head interview shots, which was the only way people made documentaries back in the day. You had you sat somebody down, you put a camera on and you let them talk and you intersperse footage of their lives with those interview shots. We made a decision pretty early on not to do that for a number of reasons, mostly because it's it's just way more comfortable talking to somebody face to face with a microphone than putting a camera on their face. 
And we made a decision to only have our, our subjects and anybody else who was talking on camera just be audio. So by default, as a filmmaker, you then have a problem with, well, if 90 minutes of the film is nobody's face being shown, what are we going to show? And how are we going to create this visual tapestry that lends itself to the interviews and in a way that the two don't um, fight each other? Right. Well, you mentioned Ernest Davis. The second and third characters, main characters, are Dink and Brad. And I guess I can't do any spoilers. What do you want our listeners to know about those other two characters and why you chose them? Of the three characters, um, I don't think this is a spoiler by saying it. Dink was released almost immediately when we started filming. And so... When you're looking at, you know, choosing three characters for a film, you want people at very different stages. And he was just getting out. So his story is not um, necessarily in prison. It's him getting out and using everything that he learned in the program to try to, to launch into the restaurant industry by himself. And so that's the direction his story goes. He's still hustling hard in Detroit. And so he's a, he's a force to be reckoned with. We already talked about Ernest who was released, Brad is still in prison serving his sentence. And so he was he was the one who still had a lot of time or some time left on his sentence. And his story then, you know, it focuses more on not only the food and what they're cooking, but the problems that he has to deal with in prison as a drug addict. He went to prison for stealing guns and, and pawning them to buy drugs, essentially. And you could create a whole separate film on just that element of what it is to be an addict in prison. In many ways, and pretty much always, actually, it's not a healthy place to be. There's not the help that he needed to overcome his addiction. And uh, so his story sort of looks at some of those issues as well. Yeah, it was a great insight that, I, again, I don't think people really understand this parallel universe that too many of our fellow citizens have to endure the other point that I wanted to bring up that you focused on, interestingly, you know, I felt like you had interesting focal points in this film that we don't often see, but you looked at the ankle bracelet and the constraints that go along with that. Yeah. Um, you know, Dave was on a standard parole. Um, Ernest, you know, after 35 years incarcerated, he got out and was was uh, slapped with an, a tether, an ankle bracelet, essentially. And uh, the process is, is subjective in Michigan. There's no, you know, there's no um, standard as to why somebody receives a tether or not. But it was, you know, he spent 35 years in prison and now he's on a tether. And it was just one more of those things where, you know, I can't imagine how hard it is, one, coming out after so many years having to navigate a world that you know nothing about but then having to do with a tether on your ankle when you're clearly not, no longer a threat. Right. You also follow Dink to the supermarket. And whoa, you know, the things that we take for granted when we go into the supermarket today, like so many choices. And he really loves the produce section. Yeah, which is interesting because they had access to produce. But I guess when you're when you're seeing it all, splayed out on a you know 20 meter shelf packaged nicely it's a different experience exactly so with regard to the people who go through the program i'm assuming that the michigan department of corrections keeps track of recidivism rates in 
Michigan. Do individuals who go through Chef Hill's program have a lower recidivism rate? It's actually interesting you should mention that. Uh, for years, Chef Hill's been teaching this program for like 30 some years. And for years or decades, rather, like they actually didn't keep track of where these guys went and what they did afterwards and all of that. So there's not a there's not a deep, long background in history to show, you know, what happens. And Chef Hill even says it on his own words, you know, he's not gonna he's not gonna stop everybody from coming back to prison. But it's not about for him, it's not about those numbers. It's about having an impact on somebody personally and hoping that that's enough. And that's that's his entire approach. Uh, he says it in the film, you know, he's taught however many people, thousands, and he's not ever looked at a single file of one of the guys that comes through his class. You know, it's not his job to judge these guys. It's his job to take them in as students, almost as a father figure in some ways, and give them as much as he can. And he's one of the rare people in corrections that truly, truly cares. I think that was evident from the film. I want to make sure that you have a chance to give our listeners your hopes about the film and what what you hope viewers will take away from it. Yeah, I think, you know, when you do a documentary film, you know, you want it to be seen by people. And so, yes, we are hoping for broader national, international distribution. Um, but the reasons aren't, you know, personal. I work for, I'm on staff at the Detroit Free Press. You know, I'm going to I'm going to have a job regardless, and this film's success is not probably going to change my life a whole lot. But one of the greatest things about doing this film in particular has been bringing the guys along for the ride it is to film after it was over. And so I think historically, you know, documentary filmmakers would make films, they would take them on tour through film festivals, and in a lot of ways, the film would have a life on its own without the subjects of the film sort of being involved after it was completed. And we've tried to, we've done everything we can to really involve uh, Dink, Chef Hill, and Ernest. Brad's still in prison, obviously, but involve these guys with the screenings. And so in Michigan, like panel discussions, having them there, creating cooking events where they can cook for people after the uh, film and, and really sort of be part of the conversation about what they hope people get out of their stories as well. So it's not just a film, it's it's bringing these guys along for the ride as much as we can, which has been really awesome. Yeah. Well, I think the power of the media is evident. I really value the work that you're doing. What do you want to leave our listeners with? I guess, you know, the, the, the thing that I've taken away from all this is, you know, really sort of be open to people who have been incarcerated. There's a lot of people out there who we pass every day who probably, we don't know that they've been incarcerated and they have and that. I can't imagine what a challenge it is to be serving a longer sentence in prison. And so just recognizing that there's a lot more people among us who are, have been incarcerated than we probably know and, and being open to accepting those people back into society. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the virtues of your film is that you help those of us who are outside see that those of us who may have a parent or a loved one in the prison system to have more compassion for those people and to see ourselves as being more like each other than different. Absolutely. 
Well, we are out of time. So I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank Mr. Brian Kaufman, award-winning executive video producer at the Detroit Free Press, and his latest production, which is a James Beard award-winning film, is titled Cold Water Kitchen, and it is a story about a culinary program in the Lakeland Correctional Facility in Michigan. Thank you so much for this film, Mr. Kaufman, and your time. Thank you. It's been great. <laughs>